0: Again, we'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church, and as David mentioned a few moments ago, uh, September 11th is certainly something that is on many of our minds. Uh, Fifteen years ago today, I'm sure most of us have some pretty vivid memories of where we were when we heard what was happening and, and what that day was like, and all the thoughts, all the emotions uh, that we experienced on that day, and we certainly want to pray about that this morning. Uh, we want to pray for those people who were especially affected by September 11th, whether it be the families of those who were injured, those who were lost, the families of first responders who still remember even more vividly than we do uh, the things that they saw and the things that they experienced. And we also want to pray that events like September 11th, um, that we would be spared from those events. Um, We pray for our world, that our world would be a world of peace um, and of goodwill and of cooperation, where we all realize and see the image of God that every single human being bears within them. But we also are realistic as followers of Christ that we do not live in a perfect world, that more suffering inevitably will come, that no government program, no military action, nothing like that can ever prevent these types of things from happening. So, As we go into that and as we think about that with sober minds, I pray it would give us an even deeper longing for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, because we know that we can't create utopia. We can't create paradise. The only way that paradise or utopia will ever come is through Christ's return. So we long for that day as followers of Jesus in a world that is much less than perfect. So we will pray about that here in just a moment. But as we started the often neglected book of Nahum last week, we talked about some aspects of God that we don't hear about very much, right? Namely, we focused on God's role as judge, God's role as judge. Nahum gives us this picture of God as judge specifically over the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Now, Assyria was the most powerful empire at the world at the time that Nahum was writing. But Assyria is also the most wicked at the time of Nahum. The northern kingdom of Israel has already felt Assyria's power firsthand. They fell to Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah has seen that power from a distance. But Nahum tells us that God is not going to sit back and watch forever. As Assyria abuses and oppresses God's people through shocking acts of injustice and wickedness and violence. Now, it's true that God used Assyria to discipline Israel at one time. But now Assyria has gone too far. And for that, God will judge them. Nahum says that Nineveh, Assyria, will be punished. God will do this because he's the kind of God who gets angry at evil. He's the kind of God who is jealous for his people. And he's the kind of God who always does what is good and righteous in the end. God and his justice cannot allow sin to go unpunished. God and his righteousness cannot let evil go unaddressed. And God and his mercy cannot let his people continue to suffer any longer. That's why Nahum says boldly and clearly that Assyria's punishment is near. Now again, prophets like Nahum have great value because they emphasize aspects of God that we're tempted to avoid, like his role as judge. And I can't say this enough. I cannot say this enough. As followers of Jesus, we must let Scripture, God's primary way of revealing himself to mankind, we must let Scripture guide our understanding of who God is and what God does. That must be our highest authority. We cannot be content to define God based on our own faulty moral compasses that are corrupted by sin in our world. We can't define God based on the latest Facebook post that our cousin shared or the newest pop psychology that we heard on some talk show. Because if we're only willing to think about God on terms like that, only willing to define God on our terms, chances are that we'll end up with an image of God that looks coincidentally a whole lot like us, right? And you know, there's something about that in the Old Testament. One of the Ten Commandments says that you mustn't create God in your own image, right? Do not worship an image of God. Do not make an image of God. That's called idolatry in the Old Testament. Therefore, we must not be content to worship a God not of the Bible, not the true God of the universe, but a God that we've created with our hands and with our minds. We worship God for who he really is, not for who we want him to be. But as we get started today, we're going to focus a little bit less on God's role as judge and talk more about God's judgment itself in the book of Nahum. What does God's judgment look like? How can we think about it in the right way? And how does God's role as judge coexist with core aspects of his character? Things that we like hearing about, things like mercy, things like grace, things like patience. So let's open up to Nahum chapter 2 as we read that together. Again, Nahum is a small book after the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Feel free to use one of the Bibles that we provide and take one home with you if you don't own a Bible. But before we do any reading, let's pray together, remembering those things we mentioned about September 11th. So let's pray together as a church. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege that we have every single week of coming together and reading your word. I pray that your word would be central to everything we do as a church. Everything we say, everything we teach, all the practices that we put into place. I pray that your word would be the authority for what we do here. Father, thank you again, as always, that... You have revealed yourself to us, that we don't have to guess what you're like. We don't have to make assumptions about what you're like. You've told us what you're like through your word. And we are humbled that you want to be in relationship with us and that you want to be known by us. Father, I pray that as we worship you this morning, that we would worship you with hearts and minds that bring you glory. We thank you for your grace when our hearts and our minds don't bring you glory. That even when we fail, even when we wrestle with sin, even when we give in to temptation, you love us, you care for us, and you sent your son to die for us. Father, again, we remember the importance of this day. I pray that we would wait eagerly for your kingdom to come in a world that has certainly fallen, in a world that is certainly painful and violent. And there is injustice and wickedness in all kinds of places. We pray for peace in the meantime, but we also look forward to the day your kingdom comes, when all the sin of the world and all the evil and all the injustice will be wiped away once and for all. But Father, help us be patient. Help us endure and help us to bear good witness to who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do as we wait. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Nahum chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we'll read together. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. One thing we immediately see in this portion of Nahum is that whenever you talk about God's judgment, there is a certain tension that develops. Now, we're going to experience that tension as we read about the judgment of God, because the judgment of God is very much a two sided coin. I mean, think about it. On the one side of the coin, judgment is awful. The book of Nahum is full of pictures of violence and pain and suffering and bloodshed. And it shakes us. It disturbs us. And it should disturb us. On one side of the coin, judgment is dark and sorrowful and uncomfortable. Because it forces us to think about fellow human beings created in God's image suffering for their sin. And as people who have been forgiven by God through the blood of Christ we should experience some level of heartbreak when we talk about the judgment of God. If we love our neighbors the way Jesus commanded us to, it should send a chill up our spine to think of our neighbor facing down the judgment of God. So on one side of the coin, judgment is awful. It's terrible to think about. But then there's the other side of the coin. And what we see there is that in the pages of Scripture, God's judgment is something to celebrate because it means deliverance for the suffering. Here specifically, God's judgment on Assyria means the restoring of the majesty of Jacob, the restoring of the majesty of Israel. Assyria's punishment means that God's people are finally being saved. No more violence, no more oppression, no more injustice under that heavy hand of Assyria. And you can't blame them for celebrating that, right? Put yourself in their shoes. I mean, after all, let's think about another example. It might sound like an extreme example, but in light of the brutality of Assyria that we read about last week, maybe it's not an irrelevant example. Imagine yourself in a concentration camp in World War II. Imagine yourself as a prisoner in a concentration camp. When the Nazis were defeated, when Allied soldiers came in and liberated those camps, do you think those prisoners mourned for their captives who were being punished? Their captors, rather, who were being punished? I doubt it. Maybe they did at some point later down the road, as they reflected after a lifetime of thought and prayer over their experiences. But you can assume that in that moment, when they were liberated, when they were freed, their first reaction was not one of mourning. Their first reaction was one of relief, one of joy, and maybe even celebration. As bad as it sounds in the pages of Scripture, the judgment of God is only something to be mourned if you're on the wrong side of it. Think about that. If you're on the right side of God's judgment, if you're in that people group who's being freed, being vindicated, being lifted up, then God's judgment is a celebration. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Well, one man's judgment is another man's deliverance in the pages of Scripture. We see a vivid image of this in Psalms 96 and Psalms 98, where Creation sings for joy at God's coming judgment. Psalm 96. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 98. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. And the peoples with equity. On the one hand, God's judgment is something to be mourned. But on the other hand, it's something to be celebrated. Because God is a good and righteous judge. He will judge the world with righteousness. And the peoples with equity. And we as God's people wait for that day. Creation waits for that day. When Christ will return. And God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. But let's pick up in Nahum chapter 2, starting in verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets, they rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry. But none turns back, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Well, we mentioned that judgment can be something to celebrate for those on the right side of it. Those people who are being delivered, those people who are being freed from their oppression. That doesn't change the fact that the judgment of God is a very ugly thing. I mean, the description of Nineveh's fate here is horrifying. We read about death, destruction, plunder, blood, weeping. Nahum uses some of his most graphic description when talking about the real-life consequences of falling under the judgment of God. The theme only continues in chapter 3 with even more shocking imagery. Heaps of dead bodies crowd the streets. Shame and violence run rampant. In the same way that Assyria was disturbingly brutal to the nations around them, God's judgment is brutal towards them. You know, sometimes we read passages like this, Nahum 2 and Nahum 3, all the darkness, all the violence, everything that's so disturbing and shocking. We read all this talk of God's judgment and we sometimes think to ourselves, man, I sure am glad that God doesn't work that way in the New Testament, right? I sure am glad that we don't live in Old Testament times, that God may have been a little bit cranky back then, but he's much better now. He's much more chill now, right? Well, there are other passages that make us think that way. Consider one, we read there, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Jump a little bit further ahead. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Dark passage about judgment. We don't like that Old Testament stuff about judgment, right? Another passage to consider. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, dark passage about judgment. And finally, one more, just for the sake of thought, for the sake of being thorough. We read there, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's a good thing that God's not like that in the New Testament, isn't it? Well, those are actually all from the New Testament. Those three passages that we just read. One from Matthew 13, from the mouth of Jesus. One from Mark 9, also from the mouth of Jesus. Another one from Revelation chapter 6. So let's think about that. Those passages are in the New Testament. The reason I mention this is because the judgment of God isn't just some quirky Old Testament thing that we can sidestep or write off like that crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. We can't do it. Jesus himself talks about the judgment of God in graphic ways, too. Ways that are just as graphic as the words that Nahum uses. Theologian Friedrich Buskell writes, the concept of judgment cannot be taken out of the New Testament gospel. The concept of judgment cannot be taken out of the New Testament gospel. Now, don't be mistaken. Again, the judgment of God is ugly. It certainly is horrifying. But it's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus himself spends a significant amount of time talking about God's judgment in terms that aren't any softer than the terms that Nahum uses. So we Christians today would be foolish, we'd be naive, we'd even be unbiblical to sidestep or try and whitewash the issue of God's judgment. Because we don't like explaining it. Or because maybe it makes us a little bit embarrassed. If you wanted to sum up the message of Nahum in three words, it might be this. God is judge. God is judge. Now, God's judgment is ugly in the sense that humans created in his image are punished for their own sin. Again, we should mourn that picture. But God's judgment is beautiful in the sense that God's people who suffer mightily will one day be vindicated. And the judgment of God is not just some inconvenient Old Testament thing that we New Testament Christians can sweep under the rug because Jesus talked about it too. So in order to have the most complete understanding of God's character that we possibly can in this life, to better understand the role of God as king of the universe, we must let all of Scripture inform our understanding of him. Even books like Nahum that seem a little bit rough around the edges. But what else do we read in Nahum? I mean, Nahum doesn't just tell us about who God is. He doesn't just tell us what God's judgment is like. Nahum tells us how silly it is, how futile it is to try and oppose God's judgment. As we talked about last week, a great way to invite God's judgment upon you is to tell yourself that God isn't really the judge. It's to tell yourself that he can't really see what you're doing. It's to tell yourself that you can somehow escape his judgment. Because Nahum goes into more detail to expose the things that will do you no good in the face of God's judgment. Nahum chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to see and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street, For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The book ends with that scathing rebuke of Assyria's so-called strength. Assyria thought they were so special that no one could ever take them down because they're the most powerful empire around. But in reality... They're just like every other nation that has fallen. You know, once upon a time, God took out the most powerful empire in the world to free his people from slavery under the leadership of Moses. If God can defeat Egypt way back when, it's safe to say that God can take Assyria out too. And all those nations that Assyria disposed of with no problem whatsoever, Nahum says that God will have no problem disposing of them. Your fortresses, your troops, your gates, your princes, your wealth, all those things that you think can offer you security. Nahum says none of those things can save you from the judgment of God. You know, the world hasn't changed that much in some ways. There are many people today who still think that they can somehow avoid God's judgment because of power, because of strength, because of wealth, because of even acts of morality. But the truth is that they can't. Assyria in their arrogance convinced themselves that they could somehow be exempt from the judgment of God. They thought they were invincible. They thought that they could defeat the God of Israel the way they defeated all the idols of the other nations. But little did Assyria know that they themselves were nothing nothing more than a tool in God's hand. And that one day they would have to answer for their own sin. Nahum is so confident of this that he even calls out the king of Assyria specifically in verse 18. That's gutsy. Your shepherds are asleep, O king, from the mouth of a poor prophet. The story of Assyria should be a cautionary tale to all of us. It should be a cautionary tale to all of us who have convinced ourselves that God isn't really the judge, that God can't actually see our sin, or that we can somehow escape the judgment of God through power, wealth, or anything in and of ourselves. We simply can't do it. There's only one person who can offer you any protection from the judgment of God. And that's God's son, Jesus Christ. The savior that God himself provided for you. Only Christ can save you from judgment because God appointed him specifically to take judgment on your behalf. So don't make the same mistake that the Assyrians made. Don't think that you're invincible or exempt from the judgment of God. Your good works, your religious rituals, your financial generosity, your sparkling church attendance, your philanthropy, your half-hearted attempts at morality. None of those things can save you. The only reason God's people don't have to fear his judgment is because God provided his son as a worthy sacrifice for all of our wickedness all of our injustice, and all of our rebellion. Our confidence on the day of judgment has absolutely nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ, period. We simply can't sidestep the judgment of God. We are in desperate need of a Savior, one who will take the judgment for us. Like we mentioned last week, Nahum is sometimes referred to as the tragic poet. And I think it's safe to say that his title is well-deserved after reading a book like this. So what do we take from Nahum? A book that focuses so much attention on something we don't often talk about. A topic like the judgment of God. What should our primary reactions be to all this talk of judgment? Well, allow me to offer a few suggestions on how to think about the judgment of God. Reaction number one, I would suggest, is a reaction of humility. In Romans 3, Paul quotes a psalm saying, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The whole point of Romans 3 is that Paul makes it clear that every single person has fallen short. Every single person has sinned. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter which family line you belong to. It doesn't matter what kind of religious practices you put into place. All people have sinned. All people have fallen. All people deserve judgment. So as we read about God's judgment on sinners, we should be incredibly humbled by the fact that we're no better than they are. The same sin that ruled over the Assyrians once ruled over you and once ruled over me. And the only reason that people like us don't have to fear God's judgment is because of God's grace. So reaction number one, humility. Reaction number two, evangelism. Does reading about God's judgment on sinners break your heart? When you think about that family member or that friend or that co-worker or that neighbor or that classmate who doesn't know Christ and you read about them being judged by God and it just makes you squirm, well, if the thought of that breaks your heart, good. It's supposed to. And it's all the more reason for you to get out there and share the gospel, to share the good news with them. Because as we've mentioned before, the most selfish thing that you could ever do for a lost and dying world on a path towards judgment is to keep the gospel to yourself. That's the equivalent of sitting and watching somebody drown when you could reach your hand out there and pull them up. But you just choose not to. So I pray that we would react to this talk of God's judgment with a renewed enthusiasm and a renewed fervor for sharing the gospel. And finally, reaction number three on top of humility, on top of evangelism, I would suggest a reaction of worship. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 focuses a lot on the judgment of God. And the author of Hebrews says, As you reflect on God's judgment, may it bring about a sense of gratitude. May it bring about a sense of worship. Because if you look at the judgment of God, and you aren't moved by what God has saved you from, if that doesn't lead you to gratitude, if that doesn't lead you to worship, then nothing ever will. We once deserved the exact same thing. We were once on the path to the exact same judgment. And yet God in his grace saved us. So may we react with worship. And may we react with gratitude that God has given us a kingdom that we can look forward to and it's not a kingdom of judgment. Again, one of the overarching messages of the prophets, Nahum, the major prophets, the minor prophets, all of them, one of the overarching messages of the prophets is that God does not take sin lightly. Period. A few minutes ago we sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. That's the opposite of sin. Holy, holy, holy. God does not take sin lightly. But again, that's not just some quirky Old Testament thing. That God doesn't take sin lightly. That's the very message of the cross. The message of the cross is that God takes sin so seriously. And yet loves sinners so much that he would sacrifice his own sin to save sinners from his judgment. Again, a prophet is simply a person who has been given a message by God and told to share that message. God's given you a message to share too. And even though we might be a world away from the book of Nahum, our message really isn't that much different from his. Nahum's message is that God is judge, That all have fallen, and that the judge does not take sin lightly. That's our message as well. But we also know something that Nahum didn't. We don't just stick with the bad news, because we have the good news. We know what God's solution, once and for all, to the problem of sin actually is. It's not sacrifices. It's not the law. It's his son. So as we leave this place this morning, sober-minded about the reality of God's judgment, may we leave embracing our role as messengers, embracing our role as prophets to a world that is lost, in a world that is dying, in a world that deserves God's judgment. As we think about the judgment of God, may we humbly remember that we were once on the same path, if not for God's grace. May we love our neighbors enough to share the gospel with them. And may we constantly have an attitude of worship and gratitude for what God has saved us from. So let's leave this place this morning as messengers of that salvation, that we can have confidence in the day of judgment, not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, again, your judgment is a challenging topic. It's an uncomfortable topic. It makes us squirm a little bit. We would often prefer to avoid it in our individual reading. I would sometimes prefer to avoid it in my preaching. And yet, it's there in your word. And part of what your word does is it confronts us with things that we don't really like. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again that you've revealed yourself to us. I pray that we would wrestle with your word, that we would be open to being critiqued by your word, being changed, being shaped, being transformed. We can come to a lot of conclusions about who you are and what you're like and what your priorities are, through lots of different avenues. We can hear lots of different competing messages about who you are and what you're like. But, Father, I pray that we would put your word at the center of that. That we would filter everything we hear about you through the truth of your word. And let that truly determine in our hearts and in our minds who you are, what you've done, and what it is that you want of us, your people. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you that you have provided a Savior. That again, we can have confidence in the day of judgment, not because of anything about us, but all because of Christ. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for his broken body and his shed blood that gives us hope and purpose and joy, not just in eternity, but it gives us hope and purpose and joy now. We ask all these things in your Son, Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, to be totally honest, according to the pages of Scripture, you have no reason for confidence at the day of judgment. So I pray this morning that you would leave here knowing Christ, knowing your Lord, knowing your Savior, knowing the one who died for you. If you need to have that conversation, if you need to pray about that, think about that, ask questions about that, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer those questions, happy to share with you what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, before we sing our final song, we do have one more announcement. You may see that in your bulletin. And I'm going to ask that David and Erica Richards and their family come up front. That way they can fill us in on some things going on in their lives. Uh, once they've given that announcement, I'll then close us in prayer one more time and we'll sing our final song and we'll get out of here. So, David, Eric, take it away.
1: David. Thanks, Ben. So, um, there's sometimes good news, bad news stories. And uh, I'll tell you at the end of this one and then I'll tell you a short story how we, how we got here. Uh, Erica has been called to... Well, it was an, a youth or an elementary pastor position, but she's like, "I don't want to be a pastor; I'll be a director uh, at a at a different church way up north of Noblesville, almost Cicero." And so, I wanted to ask your guys prayer with that, but also just tell you briefly how we got there, uh, and yeah, just ask prayer for us. So, um, so this summer, a lot of changes. The kids, we moved from one school to a more expensive school uh erica resigned from her post there was just a lot of upheaval at the the school the kids were going to uh so we were praying about two things if you know erica you'll know that she is deeply gifted to support kids you know in ministry and she's really deeply called you know she's kind of itching if she's not sort of involved in ministry And uh, just about the time she resigned and we started praying about sort of where she would be gainfully employed. You know, I was praying that and she was praying God put me to work, uh, you know, and for for you, Um, a local church, this church called and said, we've got this opening. We'd really like you to uh, apply for it. And so we spent a long time praying and over the last month or so um, and seeking God's counsel, seeking the counsel of the leadership here at Prairie View, uh, the elders, fabulous, uh, just, you know, both in terms of encouraging to follow God's call, but also accountability, you know, are you sure this is the right thing? Uh, and so I wanted to tell you guys this, because one, I'm an elder, and I didn't want you in three weeks to go, where was that guy? You know, he told decent stories, I think he was an elder, and he's he's just gone, and his kids, they were, you know, whatever. So, so I wanted to let you know that, um, that our hearts are uh, very much here, and we're very excited, uh, you know, I, I love at Prairie View that, that the Word is taught regularly, and that worship is awesome, uh, and that there's mints in the bathroom. Uh, so, I mean, there's, and God's moving here, which is which is critical. So, we love that. We live, you know, sort of if you drew a line between the Walker's house and the Kinsey's house, it would intersect our house. So, we will not be, uh, you know, gone. We're trying to finagle uh, youth group invitations from Bree for the boys, so we'll be around. But you know, on Sunday mornings and, and different times, we'll be uh, going to this other church and just pray for us that God would do good. And I would ask too, if you haven't stepped up to serve, you know, and you're like, boy, I could be a communion server. It looks pretty easy. I'd probably do a better guy than or a better job than you know Dave Richards anyway. Uh, then this is your chance. You know, whether it's Kid Zone Pro Presenter, Erica did a fabulous job at that. Uh, communion. There's a lot of ways to get involved, so I would encourage that. Um, but I especially just thank you guys. What a wonderful family. We've enjoyed the years that we've had here, and uh, you know we look forward to what God's got for us. Because big stuff. So did I miss anything? Okay. Did I miss anything?
0: Nope. Okay. So in that case, uh, let's pray for the Richards family, and then we'll sing our final song and and get out of here. Father, again, thank you for David and Erica, uh, Noah, Josh, and Nate, um, the time that they've had here to worship, uh, to take communion, to pray, to serve, to lead, um, all the ways that you've worked through them, all the ways that you've used them to do good and fruitful ministry. Um, Father, they've had a child baptized here. Um, A lot of things have happened at this church in in the short time that they've been here, just a few years. But you've worked through them in some big ways uh, in just a few short years as well. So, Father, on the one hand, uh, we selfishly are sorry to see them go. um, But on the other hand, we also recognize that um, at times you call us to unexpected places at unexpected times. And we pray that you would give them courage and strength and confidence as they pursue what they perceive to be a calling from you. so, Father, watch over their family uh, as they do fruitful ministry at this new place. I pray that they would be loved and embraced and cared for, uh, that they would be equipped to serve and serve you well and serve that church well. And, Father, I pray for prayer review as well. Uh, as we see an elder leave, uh, that we would simply trust you uh, for guidance in the future. Um, as we are one elder down, Uh, I pray that you would strengthen the elders that we do have here to give us wisdom and good guidance and good leadership. And, Father, I pray that uh, those areas where the Richards serve so faithfully, we would find people to serve in them, uh, find people to plug in those holes to uh, continue doing ministry here at this church. So, Father, watch over David, watch over Erica. Um, Again, vocational ministry is... uh, in some ways, a unique challenge. And so I pray that you would just give Erica strength as she teaches and leads and serves the children especially um, of their new church. And watch over Noah and Josh and Nate as they make an adjustment not only to a new school uh, over these past few weeks, but as they make their own adjustments as well to the new church. Uh, So, Father, watch over the Richards family. Again, we're so grateful for everything they've done here, all the ways that you've used them. And, Father, I pray they wouldn't be strangers. We love you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.